Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Okay, we're going to go ahead and get going tonight. So we're going to get going by having a table discussion. And so if you sat at a smaller table, you're going to have to talk a lot, all right? Here's the two questions that I want you to process to the best of your ability at your tables. The first is, what is hope? Come up with a walking definition. What is hope? And we'll, we'll share those as tables, and it'll lead us into our discussion tonight. Second piece is, when has hope rewarded you? Is there a story in your life where hope got you through something, and how did you, how did you survive because of hope? Okay? So I'm going to give you about 10 minutes to have these discussions because these are not light topic matters. But what is hope and when has hope rewarded you? Okay, let's, um, let's share some of the definitions that we have for hope. Is there a table that wants to volunteer? All right. Pardon? Okay, confident, confidently expecting. What else do you have? Patience. Patience. Yeah. A feeling of trust. Answered prayers. Any other additions? Pardon? What's impossible or what's possible? Believing in the impossible. Can I put faith rewarded? Yes. Only for the sake of space. Yes, sir. This is a brand new. God promises to be good to the man who passionately waits, to the woman who diligently seeks, quietly living in hope for help from God. Okay. Okay, and I'm going to, I don't want to steal the thunder out of that and take away all the flavor from it. We can't, we just put down the word waiting. Yes. Yeah, and it's how we wait. It's it's active waiting. Yeah, okay, good. Let's do with that. Active waiting. Expectant anticipation. Huh. Specific optimism or any optimism? Okay. <laughs> I like it. Optimism? 
How would the world, people without a basis of faith or worldview in a God who's interactive in our world, how would the world, and not our enemy, but the people who don't know what we know about Jesus, how would they define hope? And is there any difference between a Christian worldview and a worldview when it comes to hope? Yeah. I think hope in the mind of the world, this is what we get made fun of or belittled for, is what... Let me... I started preaching before I finished my point here. I think most people define hope as wishful thinking. A wishful thinking that says, this could happen if it did, fantastic. If it didn't, so what? I spent four hours last night with wishful thinking that the Cubs would actually score more than one run a game that didn't happen all week. And so I've used this equation. I had a friend of mine call me from, he's a Cardinal fan, go figure. And he called, first thing he says is, are you okay? (laughs) It's like, I'm fine. So my only equation to that is, have you all seen Old Yeller? Remember when Old Yeller got rabies and he had to take him out? That's what happened last night. It's all okay. We'll just get a new puppy and start next season. Everything will be fine. Wishful thinking would be that they were good enough to win the World Series. No, there was no factual basis to look at that Cub team this year and think they could actually beat anybody in the American League, right? So did I have hope in the Cubs? Not real hope. I just had, it'd be nice if they did. Didn't have much expectation they would. How does a worldview change hope? I love confidently expecting and anticipating. So I, I have always defined it as confident expectation. And the key word that I want to focus on when we talk about hope is this word confidence. And that's what we're going to focus on tonight. So what we have been building is a model. The core of this class is how do you grow in spiritual maturity? How do you measure up to the fullness of Jesus Christ? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. How do we measure up to the fullness of Jesus Christ and experience that? We have looked at the writings of Paul, and what have we concluded so far? That Paul measures a spiritual maturity based on faith, hope, and love. And it'd be really easy to say it was a two-week class, thank you for coming, you have the fall off. But if we don't understand what faith, hope, and love is, and what it looks like in the real world and how we demonstrate that to develop our soul, all we have is a nice coffee mug from a Christian bookstore or a plaque that we hang in our hallway or a bumper sticker we put on our vehicle. Because no one would go, no, faith, hope, and love doesn't matter in life. No, it matters everything in life. Think of what your family would be like if you didn't have hope in one another, that there would be caring, and that 80% of the time your family members would take a bullet for you. The other 20%, they might fire the bullet, but overall, 80% of the time, they're for you. Right? Think of children. Now, looking at the demographic in this room, there are people with children in their home, and there are people whose children have children in their home. And do you have more hope as a parent or as a grandparent? I need that demographic to speak. As a grandparent, why? Is 
is it feasible that grandparents actually have a realism that allows them to have a sustainable hope? Yes. Right? See, all of us sometimes realize, you know, our kids are either going to be great at this or be really interested in this, and, and they may not turn out to be that way. And we kind of look at that as we get older and think it's not a big deal. You know, this, I thought this was original with my grandpa, and I found out later it wasn't. He never acted like it was original, but I had such an infatuation with the man that I thought whatever he said, it was just brilliant. But he used to say to me all the time when, when his daughter and me were fighting, my mom, he would look at me and he'd say, is this a hill you want to die on? This, you want to die on this hill. This is the thing you want to fight your mother over. No, sir. Then knock it off. Yes, sir. And then other times he'd give me that look and he didn't say it. And I was like, sick him. I'm like, all right. So I die on this hill, right? And he'd be looking at me like, I would. And I'd say, yes. But as he got older, he realized you pick your battles well. When we're younger, we don't always do that, right? You know, I was joking with my father one time. And I'm like, uh, my, I came home from college and my little brother was doing something Actually, my mom came downstairs, and, and my little brother was there, and he had his plate. He was eating, and I came in and talked to everybody, and my mom said, I want to do the dishes. Bring your dishes upstairs. And my little brother looked at her and said, I will when there's a commercial, just like that. And I remember snapping my head and looking at my dad like, kill him. Because you'd have come off out of the couch and bounced me up the stairs. I'd have done dishes for a month. And I looked at my dad, and he kind of shrugged, and he said, Eric, you hear your mother? And he sighed and stormed upstairs and took his dishes. And I looked at my dad and my dad said, I'm tired of beating boys. And I was like, oh, now you get wisdom. Thank you. <laughs> I had to leave the house for you to become human. Fantastic. <laughs> so confident expectation is hope. But here's the key we're going to talk about. We talked about faith last week. Let's see if without looking at your notes, if there's any retention. I'm scared. This frightens a teacher. Sometimes you give a test out and you come back and you go... Everybody missed it. I must not have taught well. Faith is mentioned three ways in the, in the Bible. Can you remember how it's, those three terms for faith are used? Can you guess one of the three? I know it was in the midst of a bunch of my stupid stories and a bunch of other stuff, but... Faith is a system of beliefs, right? Contend for the faith, a system of truths. What else is it? You can look at your notes now if you want to. Because you're going to see you cannot separate faith, hope, and love. They feed each other. It's, tri- it's a triad. Take away one and the other two collapse. So it's a system of beliefs. What else is it? Pardon? Body of truth. Pardon? Yeah. So here's what it is. It's a body of truth. Okay? It's salvation. The faith, saved by faith. Right? So faith is used either to talk about how God works in us to redeem us. It talks about principles and truths about what is and isn't true. And how God works it. And the last one is a life's experience. So we're talking about a life experience. Now here's what I want you to see. Faith as an experience is where our hope comes from. If you separate a hope, now listen to me, it's illogical to believe that Jesus will redeem the entire world and not live like that's true. That's illogical. 
It's illogical to say Jesus is, is able to save the world and yet not trust Him with your money, not trust Him with your marriage, not trust Him with your kids, not trust Him with the speed limit, not trust Him with paying taxes and being honest on your returns. See, when you get down in the weeds, you cannot have hope if it's not built, built on faith. And we'll talk more about that. So here's kind of the where the rubber hits the road for use a terrible cliché. When has hope rewarded you? Does anybody have a moment in life that you realize that against hope, against hope even, that there was a moment that hope sustained you? I would say my first son. Okay. I hope for children. Yeah. So, so you're being able to have children was something that you placed hope in. And was it... I'm asking awkward questions on tape, right? So I'm really nervous. So were you assuming you could not have children and then had children? No, I just always wondered if I would have any and always wanted children. Was it a matter of prayer? Always. Always. Yeah, good. Now they're gone and that's nice too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so loss of a child, loss of a loved one. Yeah, that's, that's big. That's try, how do you live your life when your life will never, ever be the same again? Pardon? Health issues. Health issues. Yeah. Yeah, he returned from Vietnam. And there was reason to... You can't control it, right? Hope often comes in a helpless situation, doesn't it? See, what I wanted you to think in the conversations is that there was a moment you couldn't control. There was a situation that you couldn't fix. And you have to believe. Do you know why the number of people in my experience... Okay, and this is anecdotal, but in my experience, the number of people who called God out and said, if you are, you will do... And can't believe because God didn't perform. And I want to be just square and honest with you. I always try to be vulnerable and honest because I'm just a dude trying to follow Jesus like you are. And I have a different set of training than some of you. But the truth of the matter is, when you get push comes to shove, your faith demonstrates itself when you lose control. And there are moments when, as a pastor, people talk to me and say, We've been praying for this, and my dad has cancer, and he doesn't know Jesus, and he won't go to church, and we're praying that God will use that, and the man dies of cancer and never comes to faith. And I'm looking at God going, can you throw us a bone? Can you, can you give us something? You could have fixed him. And I don't understand it. I don't understand it. it. My hope gets tested regularly. I have a confident expectation. Part of the flaw, though, with our hope is we think we know what God should do. You know, one of the questions that's asked regularly, and I'm going to, I may butcher, not the answer, I may butcher your perspective of what the answer ought to be, but it's, it's my solution. When people say, how can you believe in a God of love and peace when in the Old Testament, God would send them in and say, take out all down to the women and children. Leave no one left. And people tap the brakes all the time and go, wait, how can God be love and Jesus be love, and yet God commands this entire nation to be disposed of? And I ask myself the question, We think with what we know, we know it all. You have to be real careful. 
if the prophets existed, and not every prophet was recorded in Scripture, but if the prophets existed to go into these nations and call for repentance before the, the judgment of God came down, how do we not know that those Philistine nations weren't offered the opportunity to repent because God loves all men? How do we know that their time had not come for judgment? But we turn around and who do we blame? We blame God. Look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. What was his hope in? It wasn't in his ability to rescue himself. It was in God's provisions. And God did not answer his prayer in the garden. At least the way it's recorded in Scripture, he didn't answer. And what I mean, he did, didn't answer okay. According to what I read, he said nothing. And so the hope is a confident expectation in what? Or probably better, in whom? And so this is what I want to talk to you about tonight when you think about the moments you've had hope rewarded. I hope it was because, and you know, if you even talk about the loss of a loved one, uh, there's no greater moment for hope than when you are out of control and nothing can be rescued or saved. You think about what Mary and Martha said to Jesus at Lazarus' tomb. Do you remember the question or the statement they made to him when he arrived? Pardon? Yeah, if you had been here. And then, I think it's Martha, right? Martha's the one who... Yeah, I'm, after doing the Mary and Martha sermon, I've become more intrigued with Mary than ever before. Martha runs out to Jesus and says, if you'd have been here, right? I got that order right? Yeah. Yeah. So Martha runs out first, said, if you'd have been here, and Jesus said, uh, he will rise. And she said, I know, in the resurrection at the end... In the final days, he will rise again, which is quite interesting because that wasn't a common belief among the Jews, but she believed what Daniel taught. She believed in the resurrection. And then Jesus said, no, I'm the resurrection. Which is quite a fascinating thing. What did he ask her to put her hope in? In him. Not in Lazarus' ability to be healed, but in him. So let's walk through our notes. All we're going to do is do a quick survey. Quick. It's a preacher's lie, right? We're going to do a quick survey of Paul's writings to keep undergirding this concept that Paul is measuring our behaviors because of who we become by faith, hope, and love. So I want to read a story. I want to just read this to you about... It's dramatic, right? It's a preacher's tool. It's from a book called The Distant Grief. And there was a man named Kefa Sepangai who lived in Uganda when Idi Amin, the, the tyrant, was in charge. You remember those days. He was a cruel cruel, inhumane ruler. And this is a story from a book called The Distant Grief. From the very beginning of Amin's reign of terror, his primary target was the Christian church. And Kepha Sapanji's graphic account tells us what the church faced. The victims suffered unspeakably. They were tortured, humiliated, and friends, of fr friends and family, they were dismembered, decapitated, made to eat their own flesh. Their bodies were fed to crocodiles or left unburied in streets and forests, forbidden for anyone to bury them. Perhaps worst of all, an entire generation of Uganda children were growing up having nothing but suffering, horror, and terror. He shares one remarkable, miraculous event regarding the way Christians in Uganda face their persecutors. It took place Easter morning, 1973. By 9 o'clock, over 7,000 people had gathered for the celebration. They had come from miles around. When the compost, or compound was filled, people climbed trees and sat on rooftops. Hundreds simply stu stood in the streets. That morning, Kepha preached on the suffering of Jesus Christ. He spoke of how Christ triumphed over evil and how he experienced victory over death. He spoke on the power of the resurrection. By 12.30 p.m., Kepha tried to close the service, but the people refused to leave. 
They encouraged him to rest and then to come back and preach again, which he did. When he returned, he preached another three hours and closed the service as the sun was going down. Three hours. You guys catch up? Twice. Just want you to know. Tonight will seem long. Not that long. Okay. After Kiva had pushed his way through the crowd and finally arrived at the place where he was staying, he noticed that several men had entered the room and closed the door behind them. They were Idi Amin's assassins. At this juncture, a remarkable thing happened. The tallest of the men pointed his rifle in Kifa's face and told him they were going to kill him, but that he could have some final words. He could only stare in utter shock and unbelief. Fear gripped his soul. He knew these men were on a mission from Amin himself. And then suddenly he regained his composure and uttered words that could have only come from God's supernatural guidance. He responded, quoting, I do not need to plead my own case. I am a dead man already. My life is hidden in Christ. It is your lives that are in danger. You are dead in sin. I will pray to God that after you've killed me, he will spare you from eternal destruction. That wasn't a three-hour sermon, but that was a doggone good one, wasn't it? (laughs) Suddenly, the hatred visible in these six men's faces changed to curiosity. Directed to drop their rifles by their leaders, he asked if Kepha would pray for them right then. Amazed and bewildered as his enemies, he prayed for their eternal salvation. When Kepha completed what was a very simple and direct prayer, these men turned to leave, assuring him of their protection. In fact, these men later became believers and eventually assisted Kepha and his family to escape Uganda and Amin's terror. Now, I know that's dramatic, and I use it just for that impact. Where was his hope? It was in Christ. And how was it demonstrated? Because he didn't fear dying. He, he didn't think that God had to perform and save his life for him to speak. He basically, what, what were his words? My life is dead and hidden in Christ. He's actually, if you look at it, in Galatians chapter 2.20, I believe those verses are right there in your notes. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice again that this faith we talked about last week, this experience of letting Jesus Christ have his way in our lives, is actually what Paul says gives him his hope. So if it doesn't start with the faith in the truth of the gospel and the story of the gospel, then our hope, is, our hope will be in the church. Our hope will be in the preacher. Our hope will be in counseling. Our hope will be that if we're good enough, God at the end of the day will give us the golden ticket and the Willy Wonka's land and there we'll live happily ever after. And we have to be really cautious that we study scripture and see the interconnectedness. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is... Boy... That will test your faith initially, won't it? That it is better to be dead. My grandfather uh, buried his sister, my great aunt, and we were at the at having dinner after the funeral, and he was like 92 and she was 91. It was his younger sister, and and he just said at the meal time, very quiet man. As much as I tell you what he said, it's because he didn't speak often. But we were sitting there at dinner, and he just sighed and he went. Nobody left. And my mom, his daughter, said, Dad, her sister June and I, we're here, and the boys are all here. And my grandpa went, yeah, yeah, I understand, but you don't understand. And I'll never forget these words from a 90-some-year-old man. He said, everyone who knows my real story is gone. So when he passed, which I shared last week, it wasn't a sad thing. 
I learned an expression, and I don't mean to be trite with it. I, I believe with all my soul it's correct. Uh, when Grandpa died, I said, yay for him and bad for us. Good for him, stinks for us. Because he's not here anymore, and, and I liked him. But I wouldn't ask him to come back from where he is in the presence of Jesus now to hang out in this world. Plus, he'd be like 115 years old and thought he was grumpy at 90. Good, good Lord above. All right, 2 Corinthians 5.1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I, I rode this, ho- this horse around the room a couple of laps two weeks ago, and I want to be real careful. Please, 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 don't equate heaven with the distant land in the clouds. Heaven is the presence of God. Wherever God is, it's heaven. The presence of God, holy ground. So they took their shoes off. Because you're standing in the presence, God's here. Take your shoes off, Moses. Take your shoes off. When you walk on the mountain, don't wear your shoes. Don't let the animals touch the mountain. Where the holiness of God is, that's heaven. So please don't you know, go into the cartoon characterization that all of a sudden heaven is this place we're going to float up in clouds and we'll wonder what we're going to do. I've actually had real Christians, and you may have had this feeling too, I've had it as well, thinking, man, is heaven really going to be just one long church service? Because even as a preacher, I don't want to go. You know, we're not going to eat. Have fun, run, do all those things. I would think of what Randy Garris, the former preacher, uh, when he was here, we had a session over at the SMC, goodness, probably 2010, 2011, on heaven, hell, death, and dying. And someone asked the question, it may sound like a ridiculous question, but the question was, will there be dogs and cats in heaven? Everybody chuckled because they know my affinity for one brand of those animals, (laughs) my lack of affinity for the other. And Randy, being a godly man, said, no cats, but there will be dogs. And everybody applauded, as they should. And I said to Randy, seriously, why do you think there'll be animals in heaven? And he said, there are animals in paradise. All the animals were in the Garden of Eden. Why will they be non-existent in the new kingdom? Because they're a part of God's creation. It just made my heart full to think there will be roses and beautiful flowers and no mosquitoes. And, and puppies. And just, doesn't that make your heart feel good? The hope is that God can provide this. But he said it's an eternal in the heavens. In the presence of God is what heaven means. Don't think of a location. Think of community, fellowship, and unity with God. This is what Paul wants us to hold on to. You will not have a confident expectation of a God if he's sitting on a throne in the clouds and your life stinks here on earth. And the only reward you're ever going to get is after you tolerate all this nonsense. I believe in a God who's with me right now, even in my suffering. A God who's like, I will suffer with you to let you know you're never alone. Because loneliness was the one thing in paradise that God fixed. So if we have to walk a lonely existence here, that's not consistent. Jesus told us his Father was with him. So, let's go to 1 Thessalonians quickly. Anybody remember about this church? What was the issue that Paul addresses when he's writing to him, just doing a little retention sounding here. Paul wrote the first and second letter to the Thessalonians because they had bought into a lie. What was the lie? Pardon? They, they were told by a false teacher, Jesus came back and left them, remember? So in the first letter, he identifies faith, hope, and love. Second letter, he identifies what? Faith and love, what's missing? Their hope. Well, if Jesus came back and left us all here, 
how much confident expectation would you have that he's got your back? See how this works? Okay, so let's read it. First Thessalonians 1, you can see it. Patience of hope. I thought that was good. One of the words you all threw up here was patience. When do you need patience? Every day. That's a good answer. <laughs> what circumstances draw patience? Range line. My lion? What is with Kansas people in the left lane going slower than a dead body. I don't get it. It's always a Kansas vehicle. It's like, sweet mercy, did they not put gas pedals in those vehicles? And I think they all jump on the road when I'm there, and God just chuckles. Look at him, losing his ever-loving mind. When does it take patience? When you don't have control. Right? Does that seem fair? Patience is when it's not happening the way you want it to happen, when you're not God. Patience of hope is waiting on God to be God. Some translations, New American Standard calls it steadfastness of hope. The NIV calls it the endurance inspired by hope. Inspired by hope. Love that. So the persecution in Thessalonica, you might remember the story. It comes from Acts chapter 17. If you're not familiar with this, you could just write that in the margin of your notes if you're taking notes. Acts chapter 17. Because what happened there was Paul and Timothy and Titus were preaching in the city. Remember there was a riot and they had to lower Paul in a basket to get him out alive. And then Paul would send back Timothy, which I think is really awesome. He's like, you go back. I'm going to sit this one out. And Timothy goes back and he reports back to Paul, the church is surviving. The church is holding on to its hope. Even though it was devastated by the riots and falsely accused in Acts 17, they were prospering. So he says in 1 Thessalonians 3.8 that they were fast in the Lord. They were steadfast, holding on to hope. So this is where you'll see primarily in Paul's writing that faith and hope are linked. They cannot be separated. Any separation ruins the character of both. Their faith enabled them to believe and trust God in the midst of their trials and tribulations. We talked about this last week. Faith is always reflective. Faith is reflective on how God's faithfulness has been proven true. If I said to you right now, write down three things on a piece of paper... Write down three moments in your life where you know God was faithful to his promises. Is there anybody in the room who could not do that? It might take some reflection, right? I believe that we look forward in faith, but we also look in the rearview mirror to remember where we've come from and how God has been faithful along. And that's one of the things, if you get stuck praying and you don't know how to pray or you don't know what to pray about, just go back and remember those moments where the faithfulness of God. I like what Henry Blackaby in his book called Experiencing God says. He says, if you ever find yourself without God, go back to the place you, you last were with him. He's waiting for you there. I love that imagery. Because we want to lead God like, come on, let's go. And we run away and God's like, no, no, I wanted to sit with you here, right here. So you go do your thing. I'll be right here when you come back. And I love that. If you ever feel like you've lost God, go back to the place you were with him last. And he's waiting for you there patiently. And that's one of the things that I want to encourage you. When you think about your faith, be reflective about it. Stop and spend some time in prayer just thanking God for those moments. I shared last week, and I don't want to just tell Mark stories all the time that bore you to death, but... The three reasons I'm going to believe in God the rest of my life are three answered prayers. And being able to go back to those three prayers and remind me. I've often said this, and I don't mean it to be cliched. Uh, If God never answered another prayer in my life, he's done enough to prove to me he's alive and real. 
And so I have to spend time when I'm frustrated that God's not moving as quickly as I want Him to or doing what I asked Him to do or when God could have helped this person with their faith and they died without faith and God could have healed their cancer and He didn't. I have to reflect back to understand He has got every step now and every step in the future taken care of. I have to trust that His goodness applied to that person too. And then I had one preacher say something to me that was really healthy. I was just starting out in this, doing this, preaching stuff. And he came to me and he said, Don't ever, ever, ever decide the final destination of anybody. God's never given you and I enough wisdom to know that. So when someone comes to me at a funeral and says, Where do you think my aunt is? I always respond what I was trained to say because I believe it. God will do the right thing. God will do the right thing. If your aunt asks for mercy, God will provide mercy. If your aunt asks to be judged on her own merits, unfortunately, God will give her that too. Because all of us say, God, just judge me for what I am. You don't want to do that. Not because he's cruel, but because if we, we realize we're not, we're not enough to save ourselves. So if the question is there, in the Thessalonian church, uh, that Jesus came back... Paul's going to answer a question for us. What happens to believers who die before Christ returns? How would you respond to that? Fifth grade kid comes up to you and goes, Mom, Dad, Grandpa, Grandma. What happens when I die? What do you tell him? Because Paul tells us, you can see the verse there, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, We're not to sorrow as others who have no hope. What does the Bible tell you? Pardon? Yes, that's the perfect answer. What happens to someone who dies in the Lord? They go to be with Jesus. Now, where is that? No idea. Is, are they in heaven? I don't know. Revelation seems to believe that there's a place awaiting the final judgment where everyone goes to the final judgment. Christians will be judged on their works and what they've offered the king, and unbelievers will be offered on their rejection of Jesus. So everyone gets judged. We'll get judged, Paul says. You might remember in our first week, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where, remember, our, it'll either be precious metals or it'll be wood, hay, and straw, and it'll either burn up or it'll be proven to have been value. But remember what Paul says? But they will be saved. Which is good news, isn't it? So all these people who say, I don't care if I'm the last person in the gate as long as I make it. Dream bigger. <laughs> Please, dream bigger. Because Jesus said, you can help me build my kingdom. And building his kingdom is inviting people into the banquet. So having said that, where are we? And the, the answer was, first answer was given. This class gets an A. You will be with Jesus. That's a good thing. Any other details? Absolutely none. But you'll be in the presence of Christ. Now, we're going to cover a story here in the Gospel series relatively soon of, La, of the Lazarus and the rich man. It's a story. Some call it a parable. Some say it actually happened. I'll let you all decide when I present it, but there's some description of what happens to the man who dies in faith and the man who dies based on his own merit. And there's some terminology Jesus uses. So Paul wrote his second, second letter to this church and has the day of Christ already come. So look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled. Would... Would that be a good definition of what a lack of hope looks like? Shaken in mind and troubled. Does it seem, seem reasonable? 
either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come, let no one deceive you by any means. This is the question being raised. Did Jesus return and we didn't make it? And Paul writes a letter to say, no, that's ridiculous. And it's a false teaching. So he's processing with them this concept of hope. Jump down to Ephesians. Now, you might remember, I'm only testing you, not because I take it personally, but I want to remind you that each of these pieces snap together like a Lego. We're building something here, if you can track with me, on the tangible effects of this. When we talked about the Ephesian letter, remember, Paul's faith, hope, and love doesn't appear in the first three verses, right? It's an exception. Where does it appear? About 15 or 16 verses into it. Remember what I told you about verses 3 through verses 14? Does anybody remember? Verses 3 through 14, there's something unique about it in Ephesians chapter 1. It's one sentence. The run-on of run-ons. I think it's the longest sentence in all of Scripture. And Paul is building this model. And what he's talking to them about is what they need to hold on to to exhibit faith, hope, and love. So he talks about their calling in Christ, faith in the Lord Jesus, love for all the saints. And then in verse 18, he says, Know what is the hope of his calling. And why this approach? Because once again, in Ephesus, there were multi-gods. It was the city of Artemis. There was the temple there. There was all of these things taking place that had multiple gods. You had a god for everything. Having been in Japan a few times in the last five years, it's fascinating when Jay Greer takes us to these Buddhist temples and there are these uh, idols. I mean, there's just no other way to put it. There's these statues and these idols that represent the god for rain and the god for wind and the god for health and the god for all these crops. And uh, I don't know if any of you are on Twitter, but if you're on Twitter and you follow Jay Greer and Mustard Seed uh, Network, he had a picture of this huge, it looked like it was probably 20 foot tall gold uh, Buddhist statue that was knocked over in the recent hurricane winds flat on its face and both of its arms broken. Reminds me of one of the Old Testament stories where they kept setting it up and every time they went back it was shattered into greater, greater pieces. And Jade has put this real, this comment underneath by don't invest your heart in a God whose face is broken by the wind. I was like, bravo. And this is what Paul is writing to the people in Ephesus. They would be a multicultural community and all the voices in their ears about just do this and add this and add this and add this. It's like when he wrote to the Galatians. He's saying, no, no, no. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is our hope. It's not, it's not whether God can give you rain or give you crops or give you children. These are all things that they had gods to pray for. Fertility gods and everything else. He's like, no, no. Put your hope in the resurrection. No other god. See, every other religion in the world... If you want to grow deep, every other religion in the world says, we will show you how to get to God. Buddhism, Islam, you can, you can go through every world religion. They're going to show you how to get to God. Christianity is the only religion where God came to us because we couldn't get there without Him. So instead of Him saying, here's how you get to God, God came to us. And God paid the sacrifice so we would be included rather than we, you know, we walk the right journey and we commit it a number of times and we get reincarnated over and over so that eventually we get it all worked out. No, Jesus is like, you'll never get it worked out. I work it out for you. So when people say, how can Christianity say it's the only way? Because it is the only religion in the world 
where the redeeming work is outside of our hands and we have to place our faith in one who lived the perfect life rather than trying to find perfection in our own way. Make sense? So when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he's writing to this multicultural mindset. I think I've given you, let me peek at the notes I gave you. Yep, you see a little uh, thing down there. I think I called it a cultural and religious mix. Look at some of the doctrinal beliefs. Let's go back to faith. Faith is three things, right? The body of belief, salvation, and experiential. So here you see, he talks about some solid things we need to know. Election, sanctification, predestination, redemption, security in Jesus Christ. And I could teach a class on this because, unfortunately, depends on what brand of Christianity you were raised in, what these words mean to you. Right? There will be some in the room who have been taught that election and predestination means that God saved you and all the other poor suckers are going to burn in hell because God just didn't pick them. doesn't sound consistent with Scripture to me. If, if it's God's will that no man or woman should perish without Jesus Christ, it's hard for me to believe that God would then have chosen a group of people and the rest of them are just dumb out of luck. What I believe is election is God has chosen that those who follow Jesus Christ will be saved and those who don't will not. Predestination means that God knew that not everybody would choose Jesus, and yet he sent Jesus as the redemption for all the world. And that man, I believe man has free will, and man chooses whether or not to place his faith in Jesus Christ or chooses to walk away. And so when you take terminology, I know that that may not agree with everybody. I'm not standing up here going, you're all wrong, but I'm telling you why I believe it, because the consistency of Scripture leads me to believe that nobody can take me out of the hand of Jesus, but I can walk away. It's a choice that I make by faith and free will to say, I will honor Jesus. Hebrews chapter 6 leads me to believe that there is a moment that those who believe in Jesus Christ can turn around and walk away and re-crucify him by simply saying, I'm going to do my own thing now. But that's a choice. Don't think you can accidentally do that. I've always wondered, you might, my running joke has always been, you know, you get up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom, you stub your toe on the end of your bed, and you fall, hit your head on the dresser, and die. But on the way down, you say a bad word when you stub your toe. That you're going to get to heaven and God's going to go, Oh, you were so close. You were so close. And you ruined it. No, no, the blood of Jesus Christ covers us. But it's faith in Him that brings hope. So I don't want to beat this into the ground. Can you see how faith and hope cannot be separated? Are, are we driving this deep enough? Then we can talk about what hope means. But if you separate them, your hope is in what? Your hope's in your hope. Your hopes and your wishful thinking, your positivity. And that's never saved any of us. What I love is that hope can be somewhat pessimistic at times. Hope is going to be like, I may suffer for the kingdom. I may die a hard death. I may have no friends. I may lose everyone who's ever loved me in this lifetime. I could be my grandfather sitting at a lunch, just saying out loud for the very first time this reality. Everyone who I ever grew up with and shared life with is gone. That's a sad day. But his hope wasn't in his hope. His hope was in the fact that Jesus would not let him down. That Jesus would, would fill the gaps. Jesus would bridge the gaps between all that and so much more. So what does it really mean to have this kind of hope in Christ? Let's, uh, let's punch these out and have a little discussion. What does it mean to have the kind of hope in Christ? It's steadfast and stability in Jesus. A steadfastness and a stability in Jesus. We all have this, uh, this is something I learned in my communication classes. We all have this prerequisite of consistency. Okay? 
And this prerequisite of consistency means everybody in your life is expected to be the person you believe there to be. The only person who gets that exception is yourself. Right? So, went to a restaurant. I ordered something on the menu. I looked at my wife. And she had the look like I cheated on her or something. I was like, what? She goes, you don't like that. Well, I thought I would try it. And she was like, I don't know you. Because I ordered a sandwich that I never ordered before. And she's like, I didn't think you liked that. I said, I just thought I would try it. And she's like, I mean, the whole night she was like looking at me like I was an alien. And what it does is it just simply proves this consistency theory. That we want everyone, doesn't it calm our nerves when everyone just acts like we assume they're going to act? Because then we can not have to worry about new variables and new influences. And we're just like, oh. So, this is so strange. Please forgive me. This is me telling a stupid story again. I decided because I care... This is so stupid. But this is your preacher. Um, I care too much about Cubs baseball. It's imbalanced. I mean, I can be angry like a fury when they lose and way too happy when they win. And this is a team that doesn't even know I exist. And there's not a single Cub player that knows there's a bald guy in Missouri who is passionate about their success. So I decided this spring that I would not watch a single Cubs baseball game this year, and I did not. I would track it on Twitter, or I would pull up the ESPN app every now and then and check the score. But my life was a lot easier. I was less, uh, how do you say, bitter. Uh, some of you are going, really? It, trust me, I, I was less bitter. I was less annoyed at home. I was less emotional about things. I actually enjoyed it. Well, last night, I didn't tell my family, because it's like, you know, when you fast, you don't walk around going, oh, I'm so hungry, but don't ask me why. You don't do that. <laughs> so last night, my wife, this beautiful girl, she goes, I want to watch the game tonight. And I was like, you guys can. And she goes, no, watch it with us. And I go, no, you guys can. And she's like, why won't you watch it? And I said, I don't want to. And so I just put the remote, and I went downstairs to my computer. I was just going to work downstairs, and I put on some noise so I wouldn't hear the game, because I knew if I heard it, the real me would break out, and I'd run upstairs. And So the whole time, and we're laying in bed last night, and, and the game went, and it's 11.30, and I'm checking on my phone. She goes, for the love, just turn the TV on. And I'm like, no. And then she woke up this morning, she goes, is something wrong? I said, no, I just wanted to go an entire summer not watching a Cub game to prove to myself it doesn't control me. I control it. Stupid story, right? No, but what I found was I was, out of, I was out of balance. Because I would doggone make sure I knew what the score was and what inning we were in and who was pitching and who was hitting and skip my day of devotional reading. Or I'm reading through this big theology book right now and I told myself I wanted to read 10 pages a day. So I said to myself, before I check the score, I'm going to read my 10 pages. This makes sense to you what I'm trying to talk to you about? Steadfastness and stability in Jesus Christ requires some choices. We're going to have to get rid of the noise to know that Jesus can be trusted. We're actually going to have to put ourselves in a position to trust him. Faith is demonstrated by hope. And hope is most demonstrated when everything else is rocking that we have stability in Jesus. I have gone to the hospital with people who love Christ, members of the church, both here and in Michigan. I've walked into the hospital room and I've seen hope displayed. I've been in the room when a doctor comes in and says, I'm sorry, we're going to have to connect you with hospice. There's nothing more we can do. And I have seen people fall apart, and justifiably so, and I've seen other people start to minister to their family from the bed. And I walk out of that room going, wow, that is hope most demonstrated 
when the world would go, no, just raise your fist to God and cry out, where are you? And I've seen people just... Now, what's fun is, sometimes a person just melts. And five minutes later, they're like, okay. This guy, his name was Ron, Ron Jackson. He was found out from the doctor they gave him three months to live. He had pancreatic cancer. You just start the clock. I don't, I've never met anybody in my life who's had pancreatic cancer who's survived it. It's just so deadly. And he cried really hard and pounded his bed and said a word he shouldn't have said. And he kind of looked at me, sorry, preacher. I go, Dude, you just got a terminal sentence. I think I can handle a bad word. And I was sitting there next to the bed and he cried for about five minutes. He goes, okay, just like this. He goes, Ron, that's enough. And he looked at me and he said, I'm going to see Jesus before you. And I was like, dude, I love you. That was amazing. He went from grief, which was good, to stopping and going, now it's time for me to put my cards on the table and believe what I believe. And he said, I'm going to see Jesus before you. And his funeral was a celebration. But I got to tell the story of a man who was broken by death and then stepped into stability and hope. You see the difference? Here's how, but without faith... And pursuing who Jesus actually is, you and I will not have a hope that sustains us when the world says tragic loss of a loved one, accident, or any minor thing, loss of a job, or loss of a dream, or whatever. So he says, uh, I love this, 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. I asked Ron why he said that to me, because we always had a, he was just a guy that gave me a hard time for everything, and I loved him. But you'll notice here, 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. Paul says one thing to the church at Corinth. You know dimly now, and then you'll see him face to face. And when I asked Ron why he said to me, why he reacted the way he reacted, he said he started going through memory verses in his mind, and the one that popped out is, I see dimly now as in a mirror. One day I'll see him face to face. And he said, I've known that my whole life, and now I realize I'm so close to that I can taste it. I was like, wow, that was one of the most beautiful demonstrations of hope. Because it was based on who Jesus was, not on his ability to say, I'm just going to keep a stiff upper lip. So, 2 Corinthians 5.8, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now, I know this is one of those questions that you'd be really nervous to go, not really, but the older you get, do you find yourself more not really looking and going, I want to be here forever, or am I the only one? Turn around and go, I'm not in a hurry. But I, I realized at 53 that, yeah, I've got to do some really cool things. And one day, some doctor's going to say to me, Mark, it's not good news. And I'm going to go, okay. Okay. You know, see, I, I always tease my wife, I have to die by 63 because that's when my money's going to run out. So I have no long ambition of living the next 30 years, folks. I've got about 10 years and it's going to be like, okay, the savings accounts. Is... Anyway, you get the point. Okay, so... First Peter 1, 3 through 5. Do you see it there in your notes? This is a prayer for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy, rear view reflection, because of his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. Now stop there for a moment. The inheritance that's incorruptible. How do you get an inheritance? In a very unfortunate way. Somebody has to die. Peter's words there. Remember, this is the guy trying to stop Jesus from dying. He then realized, no, it was through the death that we got all of our hope. 
So he says it's through the, hope, the living hope to the resurrection, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Now, remind me, heaven is where? In, wherever God is. Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The second kind of hope is assurance and security in Jesus. So it's not just the stability that when my life's erect, Jesus will be enough. But it's also the promises of Jesus. Security in Christ. That it says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. That terminology doesn't mean much to us, but theologically, to sit down means the job is finished. Okay. Now, I don't know about you, but I had a grandmother who never sat down for any meal. She was too busy serving everybody. And my grandpa, it was an older, older day, my grandpa would say, <laughs> I know this will offend, but it's cute for me. He'd go, woman, enough. Sit down. And she'd go, oh, you stop it. And he'd say, please. And then she would sit down at the table. And she'd get up and he'd be like, have it. <laughs> he'd just make these noises. And she would look at him like, okay. And then he'd go, isn't it time for pie? And then he'd let her up off her cage. Because... <laughs> It was a different world for those two. But I loved it because they were cute with each other and they were affectionate with each other and he would just tease her all the time. So whenever I call my wife woman and I have women, that's horrible. It's like it's actually a term of endearment in our entire family. And my dad laughs. He goes, because all four of his boys call their wife woman. Not, I don't command Heather to do anything. She would stab me in the throat. Okay, I just want to call you right now. I would never tell her, sit down. She'd be like, get your own meal. Anyway, so... But I love this because it says here that Jesus is in the right hand in the heavenly places, raised up together, sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Go to the book of Revelation. You're going to see this image that Jesus is sitting on the throne and all the martyrs are gathered around his throne and the throngs of people are around that throne. And what are they singing? He delivered. Not that we delivered, but he delivered. Even the martyrs who gave their life for the cause are going to be crying out, no regrets. Absolute no regrets. Securities in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ and heavens wherever God is. Third, godly and righteous living. So this is where we play a role. Notice the first two pieces of hope are based on who Jesus is and what he promises. Notice that. Who he is, what he promises... The third piece, godly and righteous living, is how we respond. How do you and I respond to the fact that Jesus will keep every promise and he is our strength when we're weak? Well, Paul writes to Titus. You might remember that the letters to First and Second Timothy and Titus are written to preachers that Paul traveled with and started churches. Paul writes to Titus in chapter 2, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. I do fear in a grace culture. Now, some of us were raised in a legalistic culture, weren't we? You went to church to find out what not to do. I don't know about you, but whether they intended it or not, I grew up in an environment where Christianity was defined by what we didn't do. We didn't drink, we didn't smoke, we didn't gamble, we didn't do this, we didn't do that. That's what I believed a Christian was. If my don't list was adhered to, it didn't matter what I did. Just don't do dumb, sloppy things. And then I discovered grace at a Bible camp, and I realized that my parents understood what grace was, I just wasn't listening. And then I started realizing that, no... 
those things don't eliminate me from the love of God. But I can actually enter into the love of God by choosing to follow what He asks me to do. Because God isn't giving me tasks to punish me. He's giving me tasks to free me. So there's a preacher in Louisville, Kentucky named Bob Russell. And he is the senior uh, minister at Southeast Christian Church, which is at one point was our largest in our brotherhood. It's a church that runs about 22,000 on the weekends. And he is one of the, the best Bible teachers I'd ever heard. Well, he's got a blog. He's, he's retired now, but he writes this blog for preachers and Christians, and it's worth reading most of the time. And, and he put out there, and I know I'm going to enter into politics, but give me just a grace to tell you why I'm telling you the story. His blog Sunday night was, Things that the Kavanaugh hearings are not saying. That's, that's an interesting title. So from a Christian worldview, I'm hearing what everyone else is saying. I want to find out. So I pulled up his blog, and it gave me a conversation with my 13-year-old. And his conversation was, the thing that no one's talking about was if this young man at the age of 16 to 18 years of age had honored the law and done what he'd asked and stayed away from alcohol, there could not be an accusation against his character. He placed himself in the place of darkness, whether he did it or not, and he compromised his integrity and his witness. You don't think I used that on my 13-year-old? I'm like, dude, you're in Web City. And in Web City, the kids are often given, because they're really good on a ball field, they're given more credit at 16 than they can handle. And like Peter Buckland told me when I came here, he said, this stage will prove or disprove your character. So when you walk on that stage, be who you are and strive to be like Jesus. That was great advice. And I said to Braden, look at this. Here's a man my age who now having to go back and recount 30 years when he broke the law. This is not an alcohol statement. you understand what I'm saying? This is a man who compromised his integrity by making a choice at a young age to fit into the world. You think he has regrets? And man, my boy's blue eyes were locked on me. Dad, I would never do that. I said, no, I hope you wouldn't. But please understand, the consequences aren't immediate. The consequences are playing out 30-plus years later. This man's family is devastated. His wife is questioning. His kids are embarrassed. Our whole country is going right down the drain. All because kids making adult decisions they're not able to make. Make sense? I thought it was a good word. I want to read the verse again. Deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live soberly. What does that mean? Your full faculties engaged. You're not sober when you're what? Drunk. And when you're drunk, you're numbed. You're not thinking well. Righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of Jesus. We get to choose. We should live... Uh, Rich Mullins used to have this t-shirt. I always remember it at his concerts. Live... Live like you're dying tomorrow. Die like you're living forever. I always love the juxtaposition of that. Live today like I'm going to die tomorrow. Make sure you're maximizing and soberly choosing well. And then die knowing you're going to live together or live forever because God is faithful. 1 John 3... Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. I want to just kind of wrap up tonight by having you remember some scenes from the Bible that I want you to focus on 1 John 3. The reason I end with it is I want you to think and meditate on this this week. So it's a little bit of a homework. Take that verse, and sometime each day, just process it. Here's why. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was glorified, how did Peter, James, and John react? When the glory of God came down on Jesus, 
how did they react? When Moses went to the mountain and he said, God, display yourself to me, and God said, I can't. It would fry your circuit board, man. You could not handle the weight of me. But I will show you my back. How did, how did it change Moses? When he came down off the mountain, how did Charlton Heston look? Gray and tanned. Right? He came down completely altered. How did Peter, James, and John respond? Look at the book of Revelation and ask yourself the question. When John, who knew he was loved by Jesus, saw Jesus in his glorified state, how did he respond in the Revelation? These are people who knew. Moses talked to God regularly. When he saw the power and glory of God, it altered him. Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. John in the Gospel. I'm still intrigued by the fact that John went to write a few things in the Revelation and the angel said to him, no, no, you don't get to write that. Leave that out. What, did it get, what got left out? <laughs> Drives me crazy. But John was going to write something. He's like, no, they can't handle that. But we're going to give you these monsters with seven heads, one like a face, one like a cow. I don't understand what that's all about. But I want you to notice that what John says here is that we, we really don't know him, but when he's revealed, we will become like him. Which means our behavior and our choices today are preparing ourselves to meet him. To be like him. When I drove from Lansing, Michigan to Vesterburg, Michigan to have a conversation with Heather's mom about marrying her, I rehearsed all week what I was going to say. I prepared myself that day, what I was going to wear, how to get up there. I didn't, Heather had no clue. I just maybe lied to her, kind of. Told her I had to work that night, and then I just drove up, asked her mom if, it, if she would be okay if I asked Heather to marry me. But that entire week, I prepared myself for that conversation. I've used this with high school kids and college kids and teaching them, saying, we live our lives like we're about to have a conversation with God one day, and we want to make sure that we are respectful and prepared and ready to ask for the mercy of God in everything we do. We just don't barge in going, you owe me, I deserve this, hey, you're going to let me in. It's, I'm going to live my life based on hope that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and he will keep every promise he's ever made. And so because of that, when he tells me that a behavior is righteous, I want to be righteous. When he tells me a behavior lacks righteousness, I want to flee from that. I want to flee from evil and all appearances of it. Why? Because I want to posture myself when, to have the conversation with Jesus that where I ask for mercy and I receive it. Next week, obviously, we're going to talk a little bit about love, but at a very practical level and how this builds into both faith and hope. But I would encourage you, think about Moses, think about the Mount of Transfiguration, and take a peek at the Revelation of John, and just see what the reaction is when we see Jesus face to face. It won't be, it won't be casual. It will be altering. And that's what John wants us to prepare our hearts for. Okay? All right, thanks everybody. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.